3: This is Our American Stories, and the minute you hear that music, you're put into a time and a place. And Jesse and I often think we should be doing a two-hour special on just great soundtracks to movies. Because the music is just so astounding and so good and always suits the purpose. And again, that's the Godfather soundtrack. We love to talk about art here, and we love to talk about actors and musicians and even comedians, our hour on Steve Martin, we urge you to go to Our American Network, go on the search button, and find that Steve Martin hour. It's terrific. There's no precedent for John Cazale. He's an anomaly in cinematic history. He appeared on the big screen, wholly formed, and immediately made an indelible imprint. And then just as suddenly, six years later, he was gone. In that short time, he created four characters in five feature films. The Godfather, The Conversation, The Godfather Part Two, Dog Day Afternoon, and The Deer Hunter. Oh my goodness, that's crazy. That can still be regarded over 40 years later as benchmarks of film acting. He was Fredo, by the way, in The Godfather. And we'll get to that later, but I just wanted to give you an idea of who he was. John's work, like his life, cannot be accurately measured in duration, only in depth. The entirety of his screen time in all five movies boils down to mere minutes. But the more we see, the more we cannot look away. It isn't simply that he had the distinction of only appearing in masterpieces. It is that his performances within them are also masterpieces. Those who mistake celebrity for ability may question how good he really was, After all, he wasn't really a movie star, he was never billed above the title, but John Cazale is acting's best-kept secret. He played one of the most iconic characters in film history, as I'd said before, Fredo Corleone from The Godfather, yet today most people don't even know his name. To prove this point, a picture was shown of John Cazale playing Fredo to people walking the streets of New York City. Here's their reaction.
4: You know who this guy
3: is? Nope.
5: Nope.
3: Something from the Godfather.
4: He was the oldest one. He was a little slow. The 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 son that betrayed. Yes. Yes.
1: Did he play
5: Fredo? Yeah, Fredo. Oh, Fredo. Uh, Fredo. 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 Do you remember? Do you do you know uh, what the actor's name is? Well, his name was Fredo. Shoot.
2: Uh, wait. I'm gonna get it. I'm gonna get it. Oh, I love this guy
4: too.
6: What was his name? He was very good. Fredo. Yeah,
7: yeah. I know it was you, Fredo. I know it was you, Fredo.
3: The actors John Cazale supported, Robert De Niro, Gene Hackman, Al Pacino, and Meryl Streep among them, all said working with John Cazale made them better. He greatly influenced many others, such as Steve Buscemi, Sam Rockwell, and the late Philip Seymour Hoffman who were of the following acting generations. If the Academy Awards can be regarded as an indicator of climactic excellence, John has an impeccable track record, not just for himself. He was never mentioned in the nominations for his acting, probably because the Academy never caught him doing any. It's a well-known bit of movie trivia that all five films in which he appeared were nominated for Best Picture, and three of them received the Oscar. Further, He appeared posthumously in archival footage in The Godfather Part 3, which was also nominated for Best Picture, maintaining his perfect record. He is the only actor in history to have this distinction. John Cazale was more than eager to explore the dark, damaged sides of his characters. In doing so, he presented us with a human instead of a type. Let's fast forward to a scene from Godfather II* where we hear a little bit about John's gift as an actor and his approach to his craft. We open with a scene between John playing Fredo and Al Pacino playing his brother, Michael.
8: Mike, you don't come to Las Vegas and talk to a man like Mo Green like that!
3: Fredo,
0: you're my older brother, and I love you. But don't ever take sides with anyone against the family again. By the way, the subtlety in his acting uh, is was so amazing. The, the emotional depth of it. When Al r- arrives in Las Vegas and John is already there, and he's got the band set up and the hookers,
9: he does like this kind of. The band is playing. He does this kind of thing, and it's just so brilliant. I mean, that dance.
8: Welcome to Las Vegas.
0: Well, his idea, right? And Al says, "Get rid of them. Get rid of them, Fredo my God. Fredo, I'm your business. I leave tomorrow and I get rid of them. I'm tired. And the look on his face was so amazing, the emotional depth of it. A whole kind of person became present in that one reaction to Al ordering him about like that. Hey, come on! Ram! That's where John fit in so miraculously because all of that vulnerability, all of that pain that was in John as a man, is suddenly connecting with us on a level that we never thought possible.
4: In the late 50s, we both were in acting class together, studying with Peter Cass. Peter Cass was quick to see what you might be ashamed of in yourself and in your background, and to point out that this was part of who you were and that you needed every part of yourself. The idea of only presenting yourself in the best light was anathema to him. I mean, if you look at John's work, you see how willingly he went to the dark side and how capable he was of doing that. John felt very strongly
2: that finding the character, you had to find the pain first, where that character was in pain, where he hurt. He felt that that was the major motivation and that would translate into positive choices as an actor.
10: I think the artist is born in a suffering child and. Uh, There are all kinds of reasons for children to suffer, and I I don't know exactly what it was that was John's reason, but I could venture a guess, certainly, it was probably, you know, a strong, overbearing
3: father that was difficult. The Life of John Cazell for the hour. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories. We continue with the life of John Cazale and you're listening to the soundtrack of The Deer Hunter. It's beautiful. And by the way, that, that point that somebody made before they knew how to find the pain in the character, that was what Cazale did. And in doing so, I think found pain in all of us. Cazale's five films received 40 Oscar nominations. In addition Fourteen of the performances by actors he supported were nominated for Oscars. This is not a coincidence. He enriched every film in which he acted. He inspired every actor with whom he worked. Far more impressive than John's association with Oscar-nominated films was the acting he did in them. But what he did was something beyond acting, what can be called transcendent acting or non-acting. Sir Ben Kingsley observed, The camera is allergic to acting. John's characters tend to just stick in our minds because, as opposed to just seeing them, we feel as if we're meeting them. For those who weren't alive when The Godfather premiered, it is hard to quantify its impact on the culture. There is no contemporary equivalent. The only comparison is the arrival of the Beatles in America. The opening of The Godfather, like the arrival of the Beatles, was similar to a cultural earthquake, Nothing was quite the same afterwards. And like the Beatles, The Godfather has remained contemporary. Shortly after the film premiered, a joke started to circulate. Someone would say, In our family, he's Fredo. Everyone would laugh because they knew exactly what that meant. The subject of the joke was weak, inept, a bit stupid perhaps, most certainly a loser. No one ever said, In our family... He's Solonzo or Clemenza or Tessio. What would that mean? But Fredo, everyone knew. It was vivid, clear, perfect. Because the actor who portrayed Fredo, someone named John Cazale, made him vivid, clear, and perfect. From the moment he comes into view in The Godfather, he commands the screen, not through bombast or bravura, but with sublime subtlety. In the midst of the noisy activity of the wedding celebration, he slowly and quietly approaches the table where brother Michael and Kay are sitting. Kay was played by Dan Keaton. When he appears, he is quite drunk, but John is too fine an actor to play drunk. Instead, he plays a drunken man trying to appear sober. He steps carefully and slowly, puts his hand on Kay's chair to steady himself, and kneels down in his tux, to get eye-level with Michael and Kay.
0: How are you, Fredo? Fredo? My brother Fredo? This is Kay Adams. Hi. How are you doing? Hello. This is my brother Mike. Are you having a good time?
4: Huh?
1: Yeah. yeah, this is your friend, huh?
3: The whole scene takes 21 seconds, but it tells us vital information. Fredo is a lover in a family of killers. With his inhibitions lowered by alcohol, we see he is sweet, he's affectionate, he's soft-spoken. He doesn't belong there. He's not looking for power. He's looking for love and acceptance. And maybe, just maybe, a little bit of respect. But the scene where Don Corleone, played by Marlon Brando, is shot In front of his son, Fredo, Brando was reportedly so impressed with John's commitment to his role that he laid in the street off camera while John shot his close-ups to afford him the greatest sense of reality in the scene. After The Godfather, John was cast as Stan, the assistant to an introverted paranoid surveillance consultant in The Conversation, a psychological mystery thriller written, produced, and directed by Francis Ford Coppola and starring Gene Hackman. Here's Coppola, Meryl Streep, and Philip Seymour Hoffman.
5: He was able to tackle anything that came up in the first Godfather. Then I wrote a role for him in the conversation.
2: (laughs) He's a nice guy for a cop.
5: I knew what was just a character of an assistant would suddenly come to life as a real character.
4: The conversation was a cult film people already had it on as their favorite film of all time especially people who wanted to show that they were impervious to the mass taste you know like it's not the godfather that I love the most it's
11: I would almost bet money that all the actors that worked with him were inspired by what he did on the day to take it that much further, to be that much more creative or, or risky uh, or personal. Because he seemed to be kind of uncomfortably vulnerable with everything he did, and that always makes people go, oh, I think i got to work a little harder. <laughs> I think I better rethink what I'm doing here, because this guy's really going for it.
3: This guy's really going for it, and that was Philip Seymour Hoffman, that last clip. John took roles that no actor would want, and by virtue of his performances, he managed to turn them into parts every actor wished he'd played. Here's Al Pacino and Meryl Streep. Streep starred with Kazal in his last film, The Deer Hunter, and was also his longtime girlfriend.
0: Freedom, come with me. It's the only way out of here tonight. Roth is dead. Freedom.
7: And he became whoever it was he was playing. And he did that by asking questions, because he taught me about asking questions and not having to answer them. That's the beauty. What's wonderful about it is you open the door to things.
4: Directors used to call him 20 questions. He was never, never, never satisfied with just the outlines of a character or just filling out the expected thing.
7: He got so much from the delving into things. It was a lesson in itself. I think I learned more about acting from John than anybody
3: that's a pretty heady statement that's Al Pacino saying he learned more about acting than anybody and he studied with Lee Strasberg and he studied with Uta Hagen the two masters of the New York theater and of film amazing there are moments in each of John Cazale's performances so real so vulnerable that one wonders if he should be watching Unlike most actors, there was never an instance in any of his performances when John was winking at the audience, trying to signal that the character's deficiencies didn't apply to him personally. Here's Francis Ford Coppola on the infamous I'm smart and I want respect scene from The Godfather 2 between Cazale and Pacino. Cazale's haunting countenance and strong portrayal of weak characters is unmatched
5: i remember when we shot that scene and uh, and and thinking that uh, we had shot something really that had come to life and was extraordinary and uh, very definitely the way he used the chair because that chair was there and certainly you could slump in it and everything but somehow he used it to express what was the point in a way that um i had never anticipated
1: I've always
7: taken care of
1: you, Fredo. Taking care of me? You're my kid brother, and you take care of me? Did you ever think about that? Did you ever once think about that? Send Fredo off to do this, send Fredo off to do that.
8: Let Fredo take care of some Mickey Mouse nightclub somewhere. Send Fredo to pick somebody up at the airport. I'm your older brother, Mike, and I was stepped over. That's
7: the way Pop wanted
8: it. It ain't the way I wanted it! I can handle things. I'm smart. Not like everybody says. Like dumb, I'm smart, and I want respect.
11: He's such an imp, you know? He's so irresponsible, and he'd be so desperate. He's so anxious to get his piece of the pie and to be respected. A heartbreaking
0: scene. And what are we talking about? We're talking about a ter- totally antisocial, probably terrible man. And, uh, because will broke your heart.
1: He really let himself out there. I mean, he's really vulnerable. You know, it's not easy to play weak. You know, if you get the script for The Godfather, you know, every young actor's going to want to play Sonny or Michael, you know? They're not going to want to play Fredo.
11: You want to be strong, and you want to be, hmm who want to say, look how talented I am. Weakness is something
9: that a lot of actors, I think, are afraid to play. They'll they'll play weak men, but they'll do it in a really sort of showboaty way to let you know that they're not weak, that it's a performance. And Cazal was just so disinclined to do that.
3: And by the way, we're disinclined to do that in our lives, too. We all do it. We know it. And we do it with our friends, we do it with our family members, and I think this is why we seek refuge in art. It is the one place where we can then talk to people about characters and talk about ourselves while we're doing it. And that's why we spend a lot of time here in art and storytelling. And this is Our American Stories, and when we come back, more on the life of John Cazale. One of the great actors you know, but don't know. Who changed, I believe, and I know Greg, who helped and did this piece, will have changed acting as we know it for some of the great actors in America. more after these messages. We're talking about John Cazell for the hour. And we love talking about art here on Our American Stories and Music. And what's beautiful about movies is the intersection of screenwriting. So there's the writing. There's that human talent, almost that operatic talent of the actor. And then, of course, there's the music. And again, one day we're going to be putting together, and I hope real soon... Just an hour or two on soundtracks and the stories of the people behind those soundtracks. Because a soundtrack can make or break a movie. And you're listening to the soundtrack from The Deer Hunter. And by the way, to remind you, Cazelle well, he created four characters in five feature films that I think can still be regarded as benchmarks of film acting. And the films he were in, all of them received Oscar nominations. And that's pretty unbelievable. John's art was ahead of the curve in the evolution of acting. That's what made him special. When the 20th century began...
6: With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about
10: anywhere.
3: demonstrative, it was demonstrative, it was exaggerated, lots of big gestures, it was still based in the traditions of the stage, because on the stage, you've got to hit the back row, and thus the big gestures. As the technology developed, first with the introduction of sound, and then with the refinements in the process itself, actors came to understand they could be subtler in their performances, Still, the desire to emote, to show off, was always present. During the 1950s, actors such as two of John's idols, Montgomery Cliff and Marlon Brando, embraced Stanislavsky's method of acting, and he's a Russian critic and teacher of acting, and began to explore the underlying motivations and emotions in their characters. So, in other words, going from representational acting to, well, getting under the skin acting. This resulted in greater realism, along with heightened emotionalism, which showed itself in climactic moments. John didn't push anything. Instead, he could invite people in and compel them to draw closer to the character he was playing. But back to the story. What John knew was that our perception of someone comes from nonverbal input, much more than verbal. How many times have you said, I met this guy and he seemed okay, but there was just something about him I didn't like. It was nothing he said or did, that's for sure. It was just a sense that you got about him. That sense comes from all the energy generated by what the guy is thinking and feeling, all the things that make up his history, and therefore his personality. It works the same way in acting, and Cazell knew how to find this life in his characters. Paradox was always present in his work. He didn't play good guys. All his characters had flaws, some more than others. He played a pimp, a thief, and perhaps a killer and a braggart who waved a gun in the faces of his friends and, at least once, punched a woman. The most normal of his characters was a professional voyeur. Yet somehow, we have affection for each of these men or at least an acceptance of them, and that's because John never judged the character he was playing. He understood the character, all the characters. Such understanding can only come through exploring their humanity, their motivation. Here is Steve Buscemi and co-star Al Pacino discussing Cazale's role as bank robber Sal in Dog Day Afternoon.
2: Just from the moment you see him on screen in Dog Day Afternoon, he's so um, you, the manager. He's so strange looking, you know, a really intense face, and then you know the the receding hair uh, hairline, the huge forehead, and then the long hair. I had just never seen a character like that on film before. Just keep talking like nothing was wrong.
7: I remember we were casting, and Sidney Lament wanted a, a 19-year-old boy. To, he, he thought that would be very important, and he was sort of right. I'd been reading a lot of people for it, and Al kept asking me to uh, to read John. <laughs> so, of course, Sidney got a... Think with John, that's not what I'm thinking. John Cassel, no, the guy who did Fredo, no.
0: Finally, because I've got such respect for Al, John came in. And I was just stunned. He could not have looked wronger. And then he read, and it was just the most extraordinary connection. I ain't going back to that prison,
7: Sonny. I, but I got the image of him in my mind. You know, and that image of that character. Oh man, everything he did, the hair, that, yeah. the movement. You come with me. Watch him. Yeah. Sit down. Sit down. The
2: intensity. Wow. You know he's very intense, uh,
9: but but nervous. I mean you felt at any
2: time that he could really lose it. Stay right there.
12: No, no, please don't no, Please
9: don't no. scary in that movie. He completely erases the dynamic that he had with Pacino in the Godfather movies.
12: Hey you, man!
0: Don't get ideas. I bark. That man there, see him? He
9: bites. You don't ever really believe when you're watching the movie that Pacino is going to kill someone. Cazal, you think, might. There's a way out of this. I'm Listen, telling you, there's you a way see, out of this. But
7: were you serious about
9: what you said? About what?
7: About throwing... Th- th-
0: about throwing those bodies out the door. But that's what I want, and you know, that's what I want him to think. I oh, do oh, know oh, what you think.
8: Because I'll tell you right, right now, I'm ready to do
1: it. Well, I'll tell you something, when he says that line, you believe he's ready to kill somebody just out of fear, you know, and, and I think that that intensity level's in his eyes throughout the entire film. He he provides that. It's right there, those eyes. It's like they cut to him a lot in that movie, and it's... It's because he's got that, he's got the stakes, and Lamette needs that to get the audience revved up.
0: There's just something in that face that takes you into uh, an area that's very dark, personally dark, and heartbroken.
3: Heartbroken and dark. And, well, that's Gazelle. The compelling choice John made was to play Sal in this movie, in the direction opposite that which most actors would choose. Typically, the psychotic gunman starts out soft-spoken and builds to a frenzy by the climax of the film. But here, instead, Sal is commanding at the start, barking orders at people, dominating them. Then, as the situation grows more complicated, he retreats inside of himself. And the quiet he gets the more dangerous he becomes. And by the way, that's so complicated and so brilliant. And you would read a script and there's no way you could come up with that. You know, when I first looked at a screenplay and a script for theater and I studied acting for a long time, I just was so overwhelmed with all the choices you could make, how to do it. It's not like reading a novel. When you read a novel, it's all there for us. But in the end, I agree with something a great acting coach once said. For the ordinary American, for the ordinary person, or even the average actor, it's best to just watch Shakespeare performed because to read it is to miss the point. It's a blueprint for actors, and it's an emotional blueprint, and there's emotional data all over the place. But the average person can't see it. They can't see the subtext. They can't see the stage. They can't hear the music. And my goodness, Cazell could hear all of that. He could see all of it somehow. And that's what made him great. Also, what he did was these opposites. He, he was able to do the opposite. If you ever get to see on the waterfront, there's a scene where Rod Steiger is going to sell out his brother. He's telling his brother, an aspiring possible boxing champ, to throw a fight for the mobsters. Now, you would think Marlon Brando would come through the seat and punch his brother. But all Brando does is the opposite. And all he says is, Charlie, Charlie. Like he was just disappointed. That's what made Brando great. It's what made Cazale great. This is Our American Stories, our final segment on the life of John Cazale after these messages. say John Cazale had a great sense of humor. As with all other aspects of his acting, there was no effort to his humorous moments, no reach. He never signaled intent to be funny. He was completely real, but was capable of such subtle nuance. He catches us unexpectedly, and we laugh in spite of ourselves. To be sure, though, like in The Godfather, we are laughing at Fredo, this sad little drunken man, not with him as it was with Charlie Chaplin's Little Tramp. He is not in on the joke. But there is such vulnerability to him that we almost feel embarrassed by our laughter. Let's go back to Cazelle's performance in Dog Day Afternoon.
10: There isn't a sadder character than, than Sal in Dog Day Afternoon, and yet he's hilarious.
7: Sal! Sal! What? Where are you?
10: and it's not about funny lines at all it's just i mean from the haircut to the everything everything about it is comic
7: now you gotta understand something
0: if we leave the country there's no coming back here one of the funniest moments in the movie was completely unexpected It was an improvised moment is there any special country you want to?
6: lucky land casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky
2: lucky in line at the deli i guess aha in my dentist's office
0: No, way only. This is not a country. That's all right, I, I'm gonna take care of it. Now, I don't know where that came from. I know that the take was almost ruined because I started to laugh, but I, thank God, didn't wreck the soundtrack, and Al almost broke up. You know, that's a laugh, if you want to get a laugh there. He would no more go for that, you know? And so because of that, it's just instead of, you know, he goes past the stage of, ha-ha, Wyoming, that's not a country. He, he goes past that,
4: and you are forced into this sort of anxiety and sorrow for the guy. Even in the funniest characters that he played, there was always something tragic in it. And he, even in the most tragic characters, there was always something very funny.
11: The character he's creating, I believe, is not some, is not necessarily something that, that that the director or the writer envisioned. I think what he brought to it ultimately was something that surprised the hell out of everyone on the day happened.
7: Yeah, you'd start a scene and then, you know, it would never start. That was the beauty of it. Then you realize, don't start. There's no such thing. It's just it's a continuum. You know, everything is a continuum. And so he would just... Say, what'd you do today, Al? I, after I just said a line to him, you know, he said, you seem like you, uh, you said you were going to go to so and so. And he would get you there. And you would just do this dance until you found your way. And then the improvisations would start, which was And then the improvisations would go. And when they started to connect to what the reality of the scene was,
10: he'd start to see. God, it was just, it was glorious. It was glorious. I've seen a ton of actors around John, just give it a couple of minutes, and you just see them go, what's that? What's he doing? How's he do that? No. Oh What's the matter Thank with you? Leave me a promise. Didn't you? Did you promise me
2: something?
7: Uh, yeah. Did you say either we get away clean or we kill ourselves? Did you say that? But I'm not talking. Did I'm, you? I'm not talking about that. I do believe. Do you, you believe in keeping your promises? Huh?
10: Yeah, but I'm not talking. Then talk-
7: does it still go? Yeah, still no? it goes. Well, what the f*** are you talking about?
10: Other actors either, you know, rose to the occasion and they didn't. Pacino definitely did. I think Al is one of the great actors of my generation. And uh, John gets a big assist. He just, he constantly made him better and better. He was inspiring. I mean, you just got, you got to... You got inspired by
7: it,
3: so you did it. You went, he made you better. After Dog Day Afternoon, Cazale, a heavy smoker, was diagnosed with terminal cancer. At the time, casting had begun for the 1978 epic Vietnam War drama The Deer Hunter, starring Robert De Niro and Christopher Walken. Cazale was cast as Stanley, a Pennsylvania steelworker. All scenes involving Cazale. Were filmed first. Because of his illness, the studio initially wanted to fire him, but Meryl Streep, John's girlfriend, whom he was living with at the time, and director Michael Cimino, both threatened to walk away if they fired him. He was also uninsurable at the time, and according to Streep, Robert De Niro paid for his insurance because he wanted John Cazale in the film.
8: It was gonna be all right, Nicky. Go ahead, shoot.
12: I learned about when we were, Michael and I were meeting with actors, and I was reading with some actors.
9: At one point, uh, he wanted to use John, and and there was an issue about his being not well. John Cazale had already been diagnosed with cancer and was uninsurable. Obviously, if if you die halfway through um, giving your performance, it's going to cost a great deal of money to recast you.
4: And Bob De Niro went to bat for John... He won't tell me, because he's a very generous person, but I think he secured the bond on John's uh, participation.
12: He was uh, sicker
6: than we thought, but I wanted him to be in it.
4: So Bob put his money down and got him in the film. And he was great in the movie. I mean, he was just beautiful in it. Oh hey, stars!
0: Hey! 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 Look at this! Hey! Hey, hey man, how you doing? All right.
2: Hey, where was you? Where
7: was
0: you? Where, where was
2: I? Where were you? Where was you? We had everything all set there—the beer, the right axle. Am where I right? Huh? Got a
0: mustache.
9: Yeah. Hey, looks pretty good. I think it's very clear that that his talents were getting richer with every movie. I remember watching that movie. And I just felt like I was there in that town with these guys. I, I didn't feel like they were acting.
1: Anybody see my boots? He's saying, uh, you know, let me lend me your boots. Let me your boots, and uh Daenerys like, no, man. Hey, Mike, let me borrow your spares, huh? Your extra pair? No, Stan. What do you mean, no? Just what I said, no. No means no.
8: Some f- friend. You're some f- friend, you know
1: that? You gotta learn, Stanley. Every time you come up here, you got your f- head up your ass. Maybe he likes the view from up there, huh? Nah! <laughs> he, uh, he says, Stan, you see this? This is this. This is this. This ain't something else. This is this. From now on, you're
8: on your own. Hey, you know you're trouble, Mike, Han. Huh? Nobody ever knows what the f*** you're talking about. This is this. What the hell is that supposed to mean? This is
2: this. You could watch the movie and the scenes that, that he's in and, and just watch him and be thoroughly entertained or really moved.
3: And that was Steve Buscemi. John Cazale died before the deer hunter was released. He was 42. No story about John Cazale is complete without mentioning his girlfriend, and again, a young actress at the time named Meryl Streep. But the most amazing thing
7: to see was Meryl during all of this, and the way she was with him and by his side, right, right through the whole thing.
2: Meryl, she was with him to the end,
8: and she, at the hospital at the end, she was an angel. She was.
2: I so admired how how she behaved. It was. He was very beautiful. It was very, he was a very fortunate guy to have someone who loved him that much during his last days.
7: When I saw that girl there with him like that, I thought, there's nothing like that. I mean, that's, that's it for me, as great as she is in all her work. That's what I think of when I think of her,
3: that moment. That's what I think of. Here's Al Pacino sharing a story about his friend.
7: I was doing a play called The Basic Training of Pablo Hummel on Broadway. And it was a really great role. And I had, I had done things with it, and I had gotten the Tony Award, and I was really, uh, you know, but John was coming to see it. And I don't like to know when anyone's in the house, but I knew John was in the house, right? And every single thing I did, every scene I did, I was trying to impress John. And I knew I'm doing this. I'm saying, this, I'm not doing this. I'm trying to impress John. You know? And uh, it was over, and I was really unhappy because I knew I hadn't done And John came back, <laughs> and he said, it's very impressive. <laughs> very impressive. And I thought, yes, John. I said, you know what? I said, he was so graceful, though. He was so gracious about it all. But I, I said, you know, I, I, I knew you were there, and I was trying to. I was doing everything twice as much as I had to do it, you know. He says, it was good. Al. It was good. It was good. He says, you don't know. You don't realize that, you know, you've been doing But I knew I had. So I was very, you know, he was like one of my idols, so that when he was coming to see me, it was. That's, that's you, the, you give all out, and that's the worst thing you can do is try to impress your, your friends who you love.
3: Yeah, imagine how good John Cazale was, though. Al Pacino was nervous and wanted to impress him. Here's one final story about John from Steve Buscemi.
2: I had a really weird experience, uh, surreal. I did uh, a voice on uh, The Simpsons where I played a bank robber, so I'm watching The Simpsons when it aired, and my partner, they they did a likeness of uh, John Cassell. I was like humbled, I was like, oh my god, I'm acting with John. I don't know, I just, I, I really felt proud. <laughs> I was like, hey, I really did, you know, I really did become an actor, and this proves it, you <laughs> know.
3: Screenwriter and director Israel Horowitz, who knew and loved John well, who found the same astonishment in him that so many others had, may have discovered the ideal summation when he called his friend, quote, a small perfection. And so he was. And in his films, so he is. The life of John Cazell... This is Our American Stories. Great job on this script, Greg, as always. Great job, team. Let's go out with The Godfather.
6: It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper?
3: This is our American stories and we got a great crew here and we try to feature their work as often as we can and one of our favorite segments is Jesse's world and it's that time
6: in order to protect African cows from ravenous lions Australian researchers have begun painting eyes on the rear end of cows Lions are ambush predators, and they rely on stealth and the element of surprise in order to bring down their prey. As soon as they lose that element of surprise, as soon as the prey sees them, they abandon their hunt. That's why Dr. Neil Jordan and his fellow researchers are going to Botswana to paint eyes on cows' rumps. They hope it'll prove a low-cost way to protect livestock from lions and lions from being killed by farmers in retaliation. Dr. Jordan trialed his idea, which he calls Cow, last year with promising results. The researchers stamped painted eyes under the butts of one-third of a herd of 62 cattle, making sure their eyes were large, easily visible, and potentially intimidating. While three unpainted cows were killed by lions, all the painted cows survived to graze another day. If successful, eye cow would be an affordable tool for farmers. Losing one cow costs five times as much as painting a herd of 60 cattle.
5: Seven, seven.
14: <laughs>
6: livestock auctioneers spit some dope rhymes in glorious rap mashups. Watch out, Jay-Z. These livestock auctioneers are coming for your hip-hop crown. <laughs> <laughs> Vine user Auctioneer Beats, also known as Graham Haven Rich from Chicago, has mashed up a bunch of the animal sellers' tight rhymes over some rap beats.
2: <laughs>
6: the auctioneer's natural cadence and flow, which according to Modern Farmer magazine, they pick up at a special training school, Fused perfectly with the music. If animals were meant to cover rock and roll hits, they probably would have been born with better singing voices. But thankfully for us, that doesn't stop Insane Cherry. The YouTube channel returns with another creature dubbed masterpiece, Joan Osborne's One of Us. Yeah, Slicing in barks, meows, hee and other beastly sounds from internet videos, Insane Cherry has also rendered Queen's We Will Rock You and Linkin Park's Numb. Watching the animals in Insane Cherry's latest ask, What if God was one of us? takes rock and roll theology to a whole new level.
5: <laughs>
6: For our American stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Thank you for that, Jesse.
5: And by the way, who gets
3: the job of painting the cow butt? That's what I want to know. And do they kick cows like horses? I mean, Because you're not supposed to get behind a horse. I don't know. I don't know either. <laughs> well, that brings us to another segment. And by the way, I love Joan Osborne. And now I can never think of her the same way again, Jesse. <laughs> I can never think of that song. By the way, written by Eric Bazilian of the Hooters. Uh, that song. I don't know if you know that. Ah, now I do. Well, now you do. There you go. And now we want to talk about one of our favorite beats. Because our friends over at NPR do some really decent and actually sometimes admirable storytelling. But they also do it in a way that you'll truly find, well, well, you'll find it only on NPR the way they do it. Which we love to bring you in our regular series called Only on NPR. For today's report, our field correspondent, Alex Cortez, brings you their coverage on the topic of the minimum wage which they dedicated a week of coverage to. Here's Alex.
0: Good day to you and welcome to All Things Considered, a show where we talk very softly and right into the mic. Do you hear that? I'm whispering right in your ear. (laughs) I'm right in your ear. Buzz, 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 buzz,
13: buzz. That was Family Guy's take on NPR. And here's The Real Deal, their host, Jeremy Hobson.
10: All this week we're looking at the issue of the minimum wage and whether it should be raised from the current $7.25 an hour at the federal level.
13: But is NPR really posing a question as professional journalists? Or are they just pretending to and really giving us all answers as activists? Let's take a listen.
10: Each day this week, as part of our series, we're going to hear from a different worker making
13: at or near minimum wage. NPR started off by speaking with Bridget Hughes, who works at Wendy's. She began there at 16 years old, making seven twenty-five dollars an hour, and now at 25, makes eight seventy-five. dollars Is there any hope for you to get a raise uh, just within the company without the government coming in and saying we're raising the minimum wage? Bridget says there are promotion opportunities, but
4: you know, for whatever reason, haven't gotten there yet.
13: She says for whatever reason, as if it's unknown. But in the same interview, she details the reasons.
4: I have been considered for promotions before, but have been uh, told uh, I was too emotional. I've been told that somebody was more qualified, you know, various reasons.
13: NPR failed to follow up on this inconsistency. And worse, they failed to celebrate the good news that Bridget herself recognizes there is a path for her to greater opportunity and to higher pay.
4: I am working towards getting promoted within the company.
13: In all of NPR's storytelling during Minimum Wage Week, not once did they tell the story of someone who started at the minimum wage and climbed up that ladder of opportunity.
1: Not once.
13: They just couldn't bring themselves to do it. But here at Our American Stories, we don't have such bashfulness.
10: You bashfulness.
13: Gosh. Here's one of our stories last year with an Indian immigrant named Daljeet Hundal, who at 19 years old started working at Carl's Jr.
14: I took that job. I worked part-time with a cook, making minimum wage at night just to pay my bills.
13: The minimum wage was around $2 an hour back then.
14: And as I was going through school, uh, trying to work full-time and that, the opportunity came up with Carl's to get into their training program. And, uh, and, and, and become a manager eventually so um, I did that I was a shift manager then an assistant manager and, and then uh, I became a general manager of a restaurant uh, in 1978 and then about two and a half years after that I was a district manager and a couple of years after that I was promoted to a regional director of operations
13: Daljeet now owns 16 Carl's Jr. franchises and 14 Jama Juices, the same guy who started at
3: $2 an hour. And when we come back after these messages, more on our Only at NPR minimum wage series, the story they didn't tell. This is our American Stories, and we continue with our field correspondent Alex Cortez's experience, spending some time actually with NPR and their minimum wage coverage. They spent a week on this, and let's pick up where we left off. Daljeet
13: now owns 16 Carl's Jr. franchises and 14 Jama Juices, the same guy who started at $2 an hour. And this isn't some cherry-picked, isolated story. Here's yet another about a minimum wage worker that we told that NPR wouldn't. Uh,
8: You know, I came in this country in 1990 from uh, Bangladesh. Uh, You know, uh, Bangladesh is a very poor country, and I came in this country, first of all, I was in culture shock. I had no clue what was going on here. uh, And second of all, the problem was I didn't speak any English. So you know, I started looking for a job. Nobody would hire me. You know, I was was a very, very bad situation in my life. Uh, so you know, all of a sudden, I walked into a White Castle restaurant in Elmhurst, Queens, New York, and I had this conversation with this gentleman named Eugene Miller. And I talk, you know, I, I sort of communicated my uh, uh, my situation with him with broken language, one word here, one word there. And luckily, my sister-in-law was here with me. And she was able to help me express myself, what my situation is. And Mr. Miller was very kind. He actually offered me a job on the spot. He said, hey, listen, you can come and join our team. You really don't need English to cook hamburgers. That's what my sister sister sister-in-law told me in my own language. Uh, You are more than welcome to join. And I was able to join that location. If White Castle was not there, I probably wouldn't be here today.
13: Like Daljeet Hundal, Jahangir Kabir worked his way up.
8: I had a desire to learn and learn English. So once I learned really English good, uh, I was able to move up within the company. I became an instructor, I became a crew manager, I became a general manager. Right now I'm a district manager running eight location in New York
13: City. Step by step, adding those qualifications that the Wendy's employee NPR interviewed said her bosses were looking for. But that NPR made sound like an impossible dream. Like the government is her only savior. Next, NPR spoke with Jane McGinn, owner of Sweet Jane's Ice Cream Shop in Astoria, Queens, in New York City. And asked her this question. And they're making what at this point? In terms of money. How much money do they make? For NPR, it's all about the money they make. And not at all about the experience, the relationships, and the wisdom they get too. Which NPR didn't ask about a single time. And all of which can become more valuable than money itself, as you'll often hear about on the hit show Shark Tank. You have the business experience and the knowledge that I lack. Many entrepreneurs actually want the experience, the relationships, and the wisdom of the sharks more than they even want the money. Not NPR. How much money do they make?
8: In truckloads
13: cash. Jane had constructed this beautiful ladder of opportunity, That was available to all of her employees, and yet NPR failed to mention how a $15 minimum wage would deconstruct this very ladder. Suddenly, the higher qualified person who was making $13 an hour is making the same amount as the brand new hire who was making $9.50 an hour. How is that fair?
5: It's not fair! It's not fair!
13: And if we're all equal, why even work harder and take that next step on the ladder if there's no reward? the business owner might not be able to afford creating such a tiered ladder that's higher than $15 an hour. Or they may just not hire inexperienced workers at all and have to solely rely on the experienced workers whose productivity they know will guarantee a return on investment at $15 an hour.
5: Learn it. Know it. Live it.
13: Jane laments this prospect.
10: The kid who's having their first job has no idea what it's like to be an employee. Um, You know, they have to learn. And somebody has to take the time to teach them that. And that's one thing that I pride myself on is, you know, someone did that for me when I was a kid. Someone did that for my daughter when, when she was a kid. And I really want to be able to offer that value to the neighborhood, the community, and those kids that need to cut their teeth so that they're great employees when they go on and, you know, do their life's dream
13: work. Another question NPR failed to ask. Why $15 an hour? How much do you think you should be making for what you're doing?
10: Fifteen minimum.
13: What's the magic in this number? Maybe there isn't any. One of their guests proposed even higher.
10: It's money, money, money by the money, money, money.
13: Well, what do you think you should be making for the work that you're doing?
8: Uh minimum wage should be somewhere around like twenty-one
13: $21 an hour. Yeah. But why stop at $21 an hour? Why not $25? Why not a hundred? Why not a thousand?
0: You're going to have to pay me one million (laughs) dollars.
13: Why are folks being so stingy proposing $15? Sorry. Heck, why are there any limits?
8: $100
6: billion. Gentlemen, (laughs) silence.
13: Businesses create a certain value for customers, a certain value that customers pay them for, and can only support a certain labor expense to stay in business at all.
10: I wouldn't mind paying more if people wouldn't mind uh, paying more for a scoop of ice cream.
13: Come with me and you'll be. In a
10: world of pure
8: imagination
13: In the world of our dreams, none of this would be an issue. The world wouldn't have limited resources. Its inhabitants would have unlimited resources at their disposal. Free ice cream. Anywhere. One turned. Sounds like heaven, but back down here on Earth, in the world we live in, there's this little thing called reality. Which is still one heck of a reality, especially in this land we call the United States of America.
12: So I went across the street and there's a big sign in this window that said help one and I walked in met a guy by the name of Ed Brown. I said, Mr. Brown, my name's Ed Renzi and I need a job and I gotta make eighty five bucks an hour, a, a day a week that's my living expense he said well, that won't be any problem we pay 85 cents an hour and you could work 100 hours a week i said hell i've done that all my life that's not a problem
11: <laughs> done and deal.
12: literally i went to work for mcdonald's the first month i was there february i worked 100 hours a week i didn't have a car i walked home every day still managed that apartment building i'll tell you you talk about tired good news was i got a free lunch and a dinner So the the grocery bill was taken care of. Then they put a sign up said, managers want it. And I signed up. I said, I'd like to be a manager. How much do they pay? And they said, they pay $95 a week. I said, I got a $10 raise coming. (laughs) And I only have to work 70 hours. I signed up as a manager trainee. I started February the 2nd, 1966, and left there in 1999.
13: Ed Renzi left as the CEO of McDonald's, all the way from $0.85 an hour for 100 hours a week only in America
1: if you want to view
13: paradise simply look around and view
8: it
1: anything you want to
8: do it
4: want to change the world
13: there's nothing to it this has been the latest edition of our only on NPR series I'm Alex Cortez
3: And great work on that, Alex. So nowhere in that NPR piece, not once did they they talk about someone who rose up the ladder? Not once. I mean, our big, great research team here, just through our interviews, this is just people we've spoken to because we ask a very important question, and we love the segment, and it's called First Jobs Fridays. And from that springs all kinds of remarkable things. And we also do a non-leadership segment. And in that, we ask, of course, what do we ask? What's your first job and how much did you get paid? Anything else there? I mean, did they talk about, you know, 15, 20, 25? Did they talk about increased price of goods? I mean, was there anything about the social cost, Alex, in the NPR series uh, as it relates to minimum wage?
13: No, not at all. Yeah, just wait till you hear the next one, Lee, about whiteness. That's whiteness? Our, that's our next one, yeah. Whiteness. I'm Lebanese yeah, the, and I'm Italian, so the, I, I can't the, wait. The privilege of whiteness. The
3: privilege of whiteness. <laughs> We're looking forward to that. And thanks for that work, Alex, Greg, on the production, only on NPR. And this is Our American Stories, and we love bringing you the full stories. And Ed Renzi's, by the way, is a part of our On Leadership series. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. Listen to that. Also, listen to Brad Anderson's story. He started uh, at Best Buy, and he, as, he, as he called himself, he was a hippie who hated work. And he ended up becoming the CEO of Best Buy.
13: Not even any commission, or not any minimum wage. He was purely commissioned. And he didn't sell anything for months.
3: (laughs) (laughs) He tried to quit and they wouldn't let him. They wouldn't let him quit. It's a great story. And by the way, there are people who have wage issues, and there are wage issues in this country. And it's worthy of discussion. But you got to bring both sides. And that's what we do here on Our American Stories. And always we do it through storytelling. This is Our American Stories. More after these messages. Talking about John Cazell for the hour. And we love talking about art here on our American stories and music. And what's beautiful about movies is the intersection of screenwriting so there's the writing, there's that human talent, almost that operatic talent of the actor. And then, of course, there's the music. And again, one day we're going to be putting together, and I hope real soon. Just an hour or two on soundtracks and the stories of the people behind those soundtracks. Because a soundtrack can make or break a movie. And you're listening to the soundtrack from The Deer Hunter. And by the way, to remind you, Cazale, well, he created four characters in five feature films that I think can still be regarded as benchmarks of film acting. And the films he were in, all of them received Oscar nominations. And that's pretty unbelievable. John's art was ahead of the curve in the evolution of acting. That's what made him special. When the 20th century began...
4: With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
11: Dearly beloved,
6: we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom?
4: Sorry,
1: sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. (gasps) No, Lucky Land
6: Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
3: With silent movies, acting was demonstrative. It was demonstrative. It was, it was exaggerated. Lots of big gestures. It was still based in the traditions of the stage. Because on the stage, you've got to hit the back row. And thus, the big gestures. As the technology developed, first with the introduction of sound and then with the refinements in the process itself, actors came to understand they could be subtler in their performances. Still, the desire to emote, to show off, was always present. During the 1950s, actors such as two of John's idols, Montgomery Cliff and Marlon Brando, embraced Stanislavski's method of acting. And he's a Russian critic and teacher of acting. And began to explore the underlying motivations and emotions in their characters. So, in other words, going from representational acting to, well, getting under the skin acting. This resulted in greater realism, along with heightened emotionalism, which showed itself in climactic moments. John didn't push anything. Instead he could invite people in and compel them to draw closer to the character he was playing. But back to the story. What John knew was that our perception of someone comes from nonverbal input, much more than verbal. How many times have you said, quote, I met this guy and he seemed okay, but there was just something about him I didn't like. It was nothing he said or did, that's for sure. It was just a sense that you got about him. That sense comes from all the energy generated by what the guy is thinking and feeling, all the things that make up his history, and therefore his personality. It works the same way in acting, and Cazelle knew how to find this life in his characters. Paradox was always present in his work. He didn't play good guys. All his characters had flaws, some more than others. He played a pimp a thief, and perhaps a killer, and a braggart who waved a gun in the faces of his friends and, at least once, punched a woman. The most normal of his characters was a professional voyeur. Yet somehow we have affection for each of these men or at least an acceptance of them, and that's because John never judged the character he was playing. He understood the character, all the characters. Such understanding can only come through exploring their humanity, their motivation. Here's Steve Buscemi and co-star Al Pacino discussing Cazale's role as bank robber Sal in Dog Day Afternoon.
2: Just from the moment you see him on screen in Dog Day Afternoon... He's so. Um, You're the manager. He's so strange-looking. You know, a really intense face, and then you know the the receding hair uh, hairline, the huge forehead, and then the long hair. Um, I had just never seen a character like that on film before. Just keep talking like nothing was wrong.
7: I remember we were casting, and Sidney Lumet wanted a a 19-year-old boy. To, he, he thought that would be very important, and he was sort of
0: right. I'd been reading a lot of people for it, and Al kept asking me to
7: uh, to read John. So, of course, Sidney. I would think, with well, John, that's not what I'm thinking, John Cazale, no, the guy who did Fredo, no. Finally, because I've got such
0: respect for Al, John came in, I was just stunned. He could not have looked wronger. And then he read. And it was just the
7: most extraordinary connection. I ain't going back to that prison, sonny. But I got the image of him in my mind, you know, that image of that like, character, oh man. Everything he did, the hair, that, yeah. the
0: movement. Yo, come with me. Watch him. Yeah. Sit down, sit
7: down. The intensity.
2: Wow. You know, he's very intense, uh, but, but nervous. I mean, you felt at any time that he could really lose it.
8: Stay right there!
9: Cazal is scary in that movie. He completely erases the dynamic that he had with Pacino in the Godfather movies.
0: Hey, you, manager! Don't get ideas. I barked. That man there, see him? He bites.
9: You don't ever really believe when you're watching the movie that Pacino is going to kill someone. Cazal, you think, might. There's a way out of this. I'm telling you, there's a way out of this.
7: Were you serious about
9: what you said? About what?
7: About the
0: About throwing those bodies at the door. But yeah, well, that's what I want, and you know, that's what I want him to think. Well, I don't know what you think. Because I'll tell you right,
8: right now, I'm ready to do it.
1: Well, I'll tell you something. When he says that line, you believe he's ready to kill somebody just out of fear, you know? And, and I think that, that intensity level's in his eyes. Throughout the entire film, he he provides that it's right there those eyes. It's like they cut to him a lot in that movie, and it's it's because he's got that he's got the stakes, and Lamette needs that to get the audience revved up.
0: There's just something in that face that takes you into uh, an area that's very dark, personally dark, and heartbroken.
3: Heartbroken and dark. And, well, that's Cazale. A compelling choice John made was to play Sal in this movie in the direction opposite that which most actors would choose. Typically, the psychotic gunman starts out soft-spoken and builds to a frenzy by the climax of the film. But here, instead, Sal is commanding at the start, barking orders at people, dominating them, Then, as the situation grows more complicated, he retreats inside of himself. And the quieter he gets, the more dangerous he becomes. And by the way, that's so complicated and so brilliant. And you would read a script, and there's no way you could come up with that. You know, when I first looked at a screenplay and a script for theater, and I studied acting for a long time, I just was so overwhelmed with all the choices you could make how to do it. It's not like reading a novel. When you read a novel, it's all there for us. But in the end, I agree with something a great acting coach once said. For the ordinary American, for the ordinary person, or even the average actor, it's best to just watch Shakespeare performed because to read it is to miss the point. It's a blueprint for actors. And it's an emotional blueprint. And there's emotional data all over the place. But the average person can't see it. They can't see the subtext they can't see the stage. They can't hear the music. And my goodness, Cazelle could hear all of that. He could see all of it somehow. And that's what made him great. Also, what he did was these opposites. He, he was able to do the opposite. If you ever get to see on the waterfront, there's a scene where Rod Steiger is going to sell out his brother. He's telling his brother, an aspiring possible boxing champ, to throw a fight for the mobsters. And you would think Marlon Brando would come through the seat and punch his brother but all Brando does is the opposite and all he says is Charlie Charlie like he was just disappointed that's what made Brando great it's what made Cazale great this is our American stories our final segment on the life of John Cazale after these messages habib and this is our american stories and that's steve martin performing king tut on Saturday Night live an actor a writer a producer a musician steve martin came to public notice in the 60s as a writer for the smothers brothers comedy hour and later as a frequent guest on the tonight show in the 70s he performed his odd and offbeat and quirky comedy routines before packed national houses he's returned to doing stand-up and also regularly tours with his bluegrass band, the Steep Canyon Rangers. We start this segment with Steve's classic stand-up comedy album called Let's Get Small. Recorded in San Francisco at a boarding house in 77, the album went platinum and peaked at number 10 on the Billboard Pop Charts. This album won the Grammy in 1979 for Best Comedy Album. In this clip, Steve gives hilarious takes on smoking.
14: Well, not too many people smoking out here tonight. That's pretty good. Kind of bothers some people. If you're in a sleazy place like this, and people start smoking, you know, it doesn't bother me in a nightclub because I'm used to it. If I'm in a restaurant and I'm eating, and someone says, "Hey, you mind if I smoke?" Well, I say, "Oh no, do you mind if I fart?" <laughs> it's one of my habits. Yeah, they got a special section for me on airplanes now. (laughs) I quit once for a year, you know. (laughs) But I gained a lot of weight. (laughs) It's hard to quit. you know, after sex, I really have the urge to light one up, huh? <laughs> See, I'm not a very tactful person. You ever start talking to someone and you forget what you're gonna say and you're standing there going, uh... gee, I was gonna say something, I forgot what it was. And they always go, well it must not have been very important, or you wouldn't have forgot it. <laughs> I would say, oh, I remember, I'm radioactive. Shake. Okay, we're moving now, eh, folks? Yes, this is comedy. All right. Well, I decided I'm taking up smoking. My uh, doctor told me I wasn't getting enough tar. The fun part of smoking is deciding... What brand to smoke? Now, Virginia slims that's a woman's cigarette, right? What do they have, like little breasts on them or something?
9: <laughs> um.
3: <laughs> oh, here's another funny clip from that same album where Steve talks about how mad he is at his 102-year-old mother.
14: I'm so mad at my mother. <laughs> I don't know. She's 102 years old. She called me up the other day. She wanted to borrow $10 for some food. <laughs>
12: I said, hey, I work for a living.
14: So I loan her the money. I have one of my secretaries take it down. And yesterday she called me up and said she can't pay me back for a while.
4: I said, what is it?"
14: So I worked it out whether I'm having her work on my transmission. <laughs> And if she can't fix that, I'm having her move my barbells up to the attic.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and every once in a while in Our American Stories, we want to just dig into A Comic's Life. We're going to be doing this over and over again over the next few months. Born Standing Up, A Comic's Life is a memoir released by Martin back in 2007. It chronicles his early life, his days working for Disneyland in the magic shop, Working at coffee shops and clubs as a comedy act, his relationships, his eventual fame, and the reason why he quit stand-up comedy at the height of his fame in 1981. In this clip, we hear a portion of this fascinating look into the mind of a comic genius, read by Martin himself from his own audiobook. It starts with Steve's nonconformist chant. And
12: now, let's repeat
14: the nonconformist oath. I promise to be different. I promise to be be unique. I promise promise not to repeat things other people say. (laughs) I did stand up comedy for 18 years. Ten of those years were spent learning, four years were spent refining, and four were spent in wild success. My most persistent memory of stand up is of my mouth being in the present and my mind being in the future the mouth speaking the line, the body delivering the gesture, while the mind looks back, observing, analyzing, judging, worrying, and then deciding when and what to say next. Enjoyment while performing was rare. Enjoyment would have been an indulgent loss of focus that comedy cannot afford. After the shows, however, I experienced long hours of elation or misery, depending on how the show went, because doing comedy alone on stage is the ego's last stand. My decade is the seventies, with several years extending on either side. Though my general recall of the period is precise, my memory of specific shows is faint. I stood on stage, blinded by lights, looking into blackness, which made every place the same. Darkness is essential. If light is thrown on the audience, they don't laugh. I might as well have told them to sit still and be quiet. The audience necessarily remained a thing unseen, except for a few front rows where one sourpuss could send me into panic and desperation. The comedian's slang for a successful show is I murdered them, which I'm sure came about because you finally realize that the audience is capable of murdering you. (laughs) Stand-up is seldom performed in ideal circumstances. Comedy's enemy is distraction, and rarely do comedians get a pristine performing environment. I worried about the sound system, ambient noise, hecklers, drunks, lighting, sudden clangs, latecomers and loud talkers, and not to mention the nagging concern, is this funny? Yet the seedier the circumstances, the funnier one can be. I suppose these worries keep the mind sharp and the senses active. I can remember instantly retiming a punchline to fit around the crash of a dropped glass of wine, or raising my voice to cover a patron's ill-timed sneeze, seemingly microseconds before the interruption happened. I was seeking comic originality, and fame fell on me as a byproduct. The course was more plodding than heroic. I did not strive valiantly against doubters, but took incremental steps studded with a few intuitive leaps. I was not naturally talented, I didn't sing, dance, or act, though working around that minor detail made me inventive. I was not self-destructive, though I almost destroyed myself. In the end... I turned away from stand-up with a tired swivel of my head and never looked back until now. A few years ago, I began researching and recalling the details of this crucial part of my professional life, which inevitably touches upon my personal life, and was reminded why I did stand-up
3: and why I walked away. Fascinating, and what a writer. And we want to end where we started, and let's go back to Steve Martin's comedy album, Let's get small and hear his hilarious insight into how it's impossible to be depressed when listening to the sound of a banjo.
14: It's not a happy sound, it's just... You just can't sing a depressing song when you're playing the banjo. You just can't go, Oh, death and grief, and sorrow and murder. When you're playing the banjo, everything's okay. Hey, Steve, your house is burning down. I just thought the banjo was the one thing that could have saved Nixon. (laughs) He went on television right at the right time and went, Oh, everything's great. Was, I think it would be great if you had been traveling around the country and got off the plane and said, I'd like to talk about politics, but first a little Foggy Mountain Breakdown. <laughs> then you'd go to foreign countries and they would get off the plane and people would go, hey, do Foggy Mountain. <laughs> yeah, the banjo's so happy. I think, I think people who are out of work Instead of giving him money, we should give him a banjo. <laughs> <laughs> and then go home and Did you get a job today at Nope.
8: <laughs> Doesn't matter though.
3: Oh, we're cracking up here and that's what we want to do and we're gonna be going back. Across the pantheon, we're going to be bringing in Richard Pryor, Sid Caesar, Woody Allen's nightclub years. You want to hear a great stand-up, whatever you think of Woody personally, his movies, and his Greenwich Village tapes, some of the funniest stuff you've ever heard. Uh, we've all got to laugh, and we got to enjoy ourselves. Steve favorite. Martin. And we're going to go out again where we started with Steve Martin singing King Tut on Saturday Night Live. This is Our American Stories. Great job on this, Jesse. By the night. Enjoy the music.
8: The ladies love the sky. Boss tuck. tuck.
3: Rockin' falling by. Rockin'
8: tuck
12: tuck. He ate a crocodile. He gave his life for tourism.
8: He's an Egyptian.
12: Now, when I die, I don't think I'm a nut. Don't want no fancy. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring.
0: Laundry?